2: Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Looking forward to the year.
0: Yeah, some am I actually. Um, Paul is an Indigenous man a mem- and a member of the Warramai Nation. Is that right?
2: I certainly am. So it's interesting how we describe ourselves over the years as Aboriginal people. Once upon a time, we were Aboriginal people and then we were Koorys. But as people learn and understand and share, now we can feel safe and comfortable to actually tell a little bit more about ourselves so, I'm from the the Karua area of Port Stevens of the east coast of New South Wales, which is the Gambit Pingal clan, which is a part of the Warramai nation, which is a part of the Gadang speaking peoples on okay. the east coast. So, in my country, if I was to welcome you, I would say Minyan Yarrawubalin Yarugu Mara as the start of that. And it's wonderful Well, thank you for welcoming me. You're welcome.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, Paul worked for many years as a senior executive in Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal services before starting his own consultancy with a focus on fostering community and personal wellbeing. Um, He's here to talk about his book, The Dreaming Path, written alongside Uncle Paul Gordon, and it's a practical handbook which outlines ways that Indigenous thinking can change your life, relationships and well-being. Now, Paul, I want to start with this because I've talked about this many times on this podcast, and I feel as though I have a first-hand experience by accident of um, an Aboriginal elder changing my life. So a few years ago, I think it was probably around 10 years ago now, I I bought a house, I left my job, knowing I had a huge mortgage. I left my job because I was really unhappy and I was really probably at a very, very low point in my life, right? I'm in the car, I'm driving somewhere, I'm listening to ABC radio and I never quite caught his name, but there was an Aboriginal elder on radio and he said, and this is not verbatim because I can't remember the exact words, but you'll know where I'm going with this. He said that the difference between Aboriginal people and white people is that white people live in the future and that today never comes. And he was describing that Aboriginal people, they wake up in the morning, they are grateful for what they have for the day, for the plants, for the the ground, for everything around them. And that happiness is in the moment. Happiness is not waiting for Friday when work's over and you can't wait for the weekend and you're going to have a drink with your mates. Happiness, he brought it right back to actually this moment. I pulled over and I was driving and I pulled over and that was life-changing for me. Yep. And I think your book's about that.
2: It's all about that. And there's lots of other things, but you've just kind of, you're you're a very, very clever thinker and, and, and reader. Because I've been thinking about all the stuff in the book and part of, I don't actually say it in the book, but I've been thinking about what is the book about and, and you've just nailed on the head. One of the things that I'll use in kind of a different kind of way of speaking than what's in the book is that when I look at the Western world and how people are living, and the book is about how to challenge the way you're living and say, am I living a good story? Because the old people say, when we leave this world behind, all we leave behind is our story so make it the best story possible and i challenge people to say especially in a time of like covid or when we have storms in our life it's a great time to sit back and say what is my story and is this the story that i want it to read when i'm old so when i'm old and look back is this the story that i want to write or are there all these other things telling me how my story should read and when you unpack that the western world has all these things that take us away from our story and so as we grow up, school system is taking us away from our story, the school system is saying, this is what you need to be like to be successful. And then there's peer group pressure right through our teens. If you want to be liked and fit in with us, you've got to be this way. And then you think about it, you're getting through school and it's a battleground, it's, it's a war zone where you have to fight all your other mates and school students to get the best mark. And then you're kind of driven to go to uni in terms of a battle to get into the course you want. And then you go through what's called a competitive selection process based on merit to get a job. And then you're in the workplace fighting each other to try and get your piece of turf and and possibly career progression because everyone's pressuring you to say you've got to get a career, you've got to go up, up and up. But then when you pull back from that, and and I've done a degree in commerce where I majored in accounting and I used to be a lecturer in economics so I could understand the machine, we're actually driven by the competitive market. So all these things, we have all these bosses and we have a boss at work and we have a boss called the government. But the biggest boss, and you've just nailed it, the biggest boss that I've thought about since I wrote the book is the clock. From the minute we wake up, what is it that's telling us what to do? The clock is saying, get out of bed now. And we go, oh, my God, I haven't even got time. to have. I've got to go. And then we drive or train or whatever. But if we drive, we are caught in the red lights and we go, oh, my God, I'm going to be late. And then we get to work. And I used to be an executive with 1,200 staff running a $60, 70000000 million budget. And a number of times I'd say to my assistants, please don't make me back-to-back meetings because that's not what I'm about. I need to be able to give people respect and time. And I need time to think. So back to back meetings, and then we rush home, and we go. Oh my God, I've got to try and get to the gym, but I've got to get to to the shops to get some decent food. I don't want takeaway because that's what I do when I'm in a rush. And oh my God, I'm so stressed. I better pop off for another bottle of Chardonnay. And then oh, I've got to try and watch telly. Oh my God, it's nine thirty. I've got to get to bed because I've got to be up. And so the clock dictates everything for the Western world. Whereas what that elder is talking about is that. Time in Aboriginal ways doesn't exist. And it came up, it ties into literary practice, in fact, because this book is nonfiction. But for many reasons, I'm just about to finish a PhD. I'm in the last month of it. And the PhD is a PhD. I did
0: notice you were a lazy guy there, Paul, not doing very much yet. (laughs) Yeah, just doing a PhD. (laughs)
2: So the PhD is in creative practice. So it has a thesis, but it also has a novel. Yeah. And I had to write the thesis about why I wrote the novel. And so it forced me to really think about why do I want to write fiction because fiction is so much harder than non-fiction. It just is a mind-bender. But when I finished the novel and I got some really some really established and well-known writers to read it for me, and when they gave their comments, the comments challenged me, but they were really, really good as we know when we're doing copy edits and we're, we're top fine-tuning what we write. But one of the things I noticed in terms of, fiction writing, is there's a Western world literature book of rules of what you must do to be considered a writer. And I looked at them and one of them is every chapter you need to anchor it in time. The setting needs to anchor in time. And I've gone, okay, how come I didn't do that? And then I went and did some research for the other part of the thesis and I found some research that validated what I thought, and that is that... It was in a, psych, uh, a psychiatry journal, of all things, I found this this commentary on time, and the research said that Aboriginal people have no concept of time, which I always knew, but doing a thesis you've got to show the validation. And it, and it showed that Aboriginal people, and I, we have no concept of past, present or future, it's the same because it's a cycle and we go back and forward in it. And so if ever you read Dreamtime stories, you won't find them Saying it was the it was the 24th of July at 4 a.m. and the moon was up, or we'll just say the moon was in the sky and, and the bulomar was smiling upon us, which is the Milky Way. Because our dream time stories don't feel the need to anchor in time because we have a different way. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's different. So being a fictional writer now with this PhD, it really challenged me in terms of thinking about time. Because Time to us is right now, and part of that you will you would have heard terribly racist comments in the past where people say, oh, yeah, he's gone walkabout, she's gone walkabout. You know, you think about Wimbledon tennis and Yvonne Corley way back in the day, people would say, oh, she's gone walkabout. And it's a derogatory term aimed at Aboriginal people based on a Western way of thinking, whereas in traditional times, if you really understand where we're coming from, we didn't go walkabout, we went walking in. And when we walk in country... Every step we take, we're acknowledging what is around us, the beauty of a tree, the beauty of the breeze, the beauty of the sun, which is our grandmother, the boss that loves us, the birds singing, or there might be a, a hairy grub marching, telling us that the mullet are running down at the estuary. So everything around us in country is telling us a story. And so we live in the moment and ceremony is in the moment saying, look at all the beautiful things I've been given. So time becomes irrelevant because we didn't have clocks. We didn't have to. And so that's the biggest problem I see in the Western world that we have all these things that are driving us away from our story. But the biggest one is the clock. Mm. So much so mm. I don't even wear a watch. I mm. just refuse to, because I won't let it be my boss. Mm.
0: I've got to tell you, I'm in mean, that comment. Honestly, it really changed my life. It just made me more thoughtful and and it slowed down. And now, you know, when I'm having my coffee at 5 five thirty in the morning, that's my happy time. When I'm, you know, going for a swim at ten, that's my happy time. You know, whatever Sorry. I'm doing. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, well, this
2: morning I've been paddleboarding for two hours out on yeah. the river. And it's just the time to connect with all that's around me and see the beauty. Yeah, absolutely. And come back, and then and, and and the reality is we do need to balance. I've had people tell me, "Oh, yeah, you're the coloured glasses. You live in, you live in fairyland." Well, no, it's not about that. It's understanding there is a real world of remuneration and earning money and paying bills for sure, but there's all this wisdom from Aboriginal ways of being and doing that. If I'm humble enough to listen, I can use, and in fact. The traditional ways of thinking are more important now than they ever were because of these constraints that surround us everywhere.
0: Oh, I'm more important than ever, and also too, you know, the value of you know, you were talking about your career path and people's career paths. I butted against organisations like it didn't work for me. I was just found myself hitting butting up to it all the time. One, I could never read through the lines. I didn't think that they were honest. You know, I I just like why didn't people just say it outright? I just never understood anything. Absolutely right, know? right. crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And so it didn't work for me. So I opted out years ago and started my own business and I refuse to allow those sorts of things to get into my business. I'm very, very conscious of that. So I think that you're right. The system is in place to make us be that way. I often think why are people more depressed? Why are people more stressed? Why are people suffering more anxiety? It's those people that just can't go along with the system because it's not for them.
2: Yeah, I've got a really nice... Story I can tell about that, which is part of the bigger story. The the bigger story is I did everything I was told until my mid-30s, so I I was trying my hardest to be the perfect husband, perfect son, perfect community member, perfect colleague, perfect everything. And it all got too much for me and I had a nervous breakdown and I, I was bedridden for three months in a fetal position crying. I became agoraphobic. I was consumed with panic attacks. I couldn't leave the house. And my wife was young and we had three kids under five. And when I went into the Western system, the Western system told me that this is incurable. And I thought this isn't fair to my family. They don't need this cripple. So I went down the road to kill myself on this particular day. And as I did, this thought came to me, maybe you don't need to kill yourself. Maybe you need to change the way you think and own your life and come back and walk your footsteps. And that's what I did. I trudged up the hill and I went, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And it was a hard battle, but eventually got on top of it. But then when I got to take in bush and shown up culture, the things I were given I was given were profound, but also they were kind of simple and easy to remember. And so when I did all that, I started to, to heal. And because I was determined to live life by my calls and my decisions after that, everything became easy for me. And so I decided to walk my footsteps and not worry about a career, but I have got a job in TAFE and I got all these promotions, I don't know why. I got promoted from the Aboriginal manager of the unit to the to the head of access and equity, and then I became the, the equivalent of a dean of business. Then I became the only Aboriginal person to be a CEO of a, an institute. So I was CEO of New England institute where I had 1,200 staff, I had 22,000 students, 10 campuses, and I led by using all the things I'd been given I just was able to translate them into a Western way of thinking and bring them together. And we we were awarded the best institute, the best training organisation in New South Wales in my third year and we were voted top three in Australia. So it worked. But then I got headhunted into government, more even more senior position in Aboriginal housing and I thought, wow, this is going to be great. I can start giving back to my community. But I was so hamstrung by politics I couldn't do a single single thing and so after a year my heart was broken and I had to decide do I take the money and just pretend it's all okay knowing that I'm contributing to the problem by not being able to address it or do I walk and what you said to me earlier before we 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 started about making big decisions I did that my wife and I We quit our jobs and moved back to where I come from, Karua, and we had a massive mortgage and no jobs, just faith that we would sort this out because we're going to do what we believe in. And that's that's my message to everybody. There are all these things around us that try and tell us how to live a successful life. If you look at the cornerstones of Aboriginal culture, it's quite simple. The cornerstone of Aboriginal culture says... Our way of success is the quality of our relationships with each other and the land. If we have good relationships with people around us and with the land and things on the land, then we're going to be well. And so there's no talk of material possessions and there's no talk of prestige, whereas the Western world, there's this pressure to be seen as important, which is a lot of pressure in social media, I need to be liked and the clicks and it's getting worse, and I need to have a good job and money and all those things they're quite irrelevant. That doesn't mean you can't be a CEO. It's about what you're doing with that. Mm-hmm. That's what's really important. And so I started from scratch in 2014 with no job prospects, started my own business saying this could all go belly up, and my wife and I agreed. I've been, I've been lucky. I've got such a wonderful partner. And we both said if need be, we'll sell the house, get out of debt, and we can just start all over again and eat baked beans. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me into what I do now, which is training and speaking and writing. And if someone would have said to me in 2013, when I was the most senior Aboriginal public servant in New South Wales, and that's where I saw my, my road going until I retired, if someone said to me, no, in, in 2022, you're going to be on a podcast, you're going to have a book out that will also have contracts in Germany and France and you have a literary agent in Paris, and that you will be in the final month of your PhD. And in the PhD, you've written two novels. Plus, you've got another book that you've written for nine-year-olds that will be coming out later in the year. And you're going to be living and having a contented life where you can go paddleboarding every day. I would have said, what planet do you on?" And you better come back to the real one. And yeah. yet, that's where it's taken me.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: You know, Paul, um, when I was reading your book, to me, a lot of it was practical and it made perfect sense. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, don't people know that? But the problem is people don't know it, like me, people don't know it until they're in it so yes. you, know, you could be feeling all of these things, and you you don't start thinking about you know caring for our place and the importance of story. You don't start thinking about relationships and sharing unity. You don't think about love and gratitude and humility until that that's the problem. And often all of us only go to books like this when we're in a crisis, you know, whereas we should be looking at, at books like this and wisdom like this, if you like, because that's what it is all of the time, just to keep us on track.
2: Yeah, and, and again, the problem there is it's about having good habits. Mm. So what happens as we get poked through the school system, we pick up a bad habit of being busy without questioning why we're busy. Mm. Why am I so busy? I mean, it breaks my heart. I see kids queuing up that's like Pink Floyd in the Wall way back in 1979 and being put through the mincer. A lot of what I say isn't new. People go, but I knew that. Yeah, but mm. Yeah, but you didn't see it. And that's what happened when I went bush. I went, oh, this is just common sense. But gee, I've never thought of it this way. Absolutely. And what I talk about is in the simple is the profound. So hopefully what I've got in the book is, is stuff that you go, well, that's pretty simple, but that's good because it's not hard. Therefore, I can remember it and therefore I can do it. So we have this habit of being busy from, from younger years through high school and then we get into a career. And we have this pressure on ourselves to try and be the perfect father or mother and the pressure on women particularly to be the perfect mother and to look a million dollars on social media and to do all this stuff. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's why in all of my books, including my novels particularly, I put a lot in it about our culture and how we need to respect the mother, Mother Earth. But that needs to then come back to respecting women and knowing and appreciating that without women, there is no life. And so we need to reshape the way we see everything around us and understand that women need to be the focus of attention rather than male male alpha dominant behaviours and caveman stuff. Mm. That doesn't mean we, we can't be who we are, but we need to reshape some of this way of thinking to respecting women and acknowledging that they are the most important things that surround us. Mm-hmm. So all those things are within our culture and it is a matter of getting into the habit of slowing down and thinking about these things and allowing yourself to be vulnerable but also allowing yourself to reflect and go, okay, rather than regret my mistakes or bury them, I can have a, I'll unpack them, I'll, I'll dig that up and I'll have a look at it and I'll go, what can I learn from that so I can use it? And and that's what it's all about. The Western world, again, has this kind of shame factor of, oh, I know I don't want to go there. That was a mistake. Well, no, mistakes happen in our our way, in in the Aboriginal spiritual way. Mistakes happen because the old spirits know we're ready to learn and grow. And so Mm. a mistake, rather than being something negative, is a wonderful gate opening to say, if you look at this and learn, you can grow, and from that you'll have a better understanding and you'll be better able to walk your dreaming path, but you'll also be able to help others. So Mm -hmm. it's getting into these good habits of slowing down but challenging yourself to say, what is my story? That's the other big one. What is my story? Am Mm -hmm. I happy with my story? Because most people's story is about being busy. So going back to what I was going to tell you, where this really came from, the Uncle Paul and I, we were sitting down in a little food court just outside Central Railway Station in Sydney quite a few years ago. We had our first book out iridescence and we're just sitting there and we're about to go give a big presentation to a government organisation about what we want to share with juvenile justice and, and, and offenders in the criminal justice system. So it was a really important meeting. They, by the way, crashed and burned and we got thrown out and never, never seen again. <laughs> But beside that, we were sitting there getting ready for the meeting and I said, Uncle, have you ever had a Vietnamese pork roll? Because I noticed in the food court there was a shop there. They're good. He went, <laughs> he went no. And I said, well, mate, get ready. I'm going to knock your socks off with joy. Yeah. So I went and got them and I keep on forgetting the name. My son keeps saying you've got to remember the name to show respect for culture. Now, I've got it written down somewhere here so I remember it. We're sitting there eating these pork rolls, and in terms of our, if you believe in aura or energy fields, if you could have photographed us, you would have seen rainbows just coming out of this like lightning. Of course, we're both in the moment going, how good is this for five bucks? But as I'm munching on mine, and he's going the same, he said, hey, brother, we need another one of these. These are so good. But I looked around, and everyone was shrouded in gray. So if you can imagine, if you could photograph their, their aura, Everyone was grey in monochrome. Their body language was terrible. They were stooped. And they were all heading into these big, tall buildings where we were going to go. And I thought, oh, man, these poor fellas, this is no way to live because look at us, two little yeah. big, big people here, unimportant in the scheme of things. Yeah. yeah.
0: Tell me a little bit about Uncle Paul. Do you know, I love that... Um, that respectful titles the, the respectful titles that aboriginal people use towards their elders like yep. uncle aunt I, I really love that i i feel that it's um it's soft in a way in terms of relationships yeah. it, it softens yeah. the scenario
2: yeah well for sure and, and certainly aboriginal people were diverse and have different ways of thinking and being of and course. i don't ever ask to be called uncle but as you can tell by the hair, I'm over sixty myself, so I have a lot of people calling me uncle. Wow. And when they do, I know it's because of their respect, not because they feel they have to. And so, it's a transference of love and in, in, in the relationship that it I feels
0: remember. that way for sure love. to me.
2: Yeah. It does. So I call Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, even though we're the same age. Out of oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, in fact, I'm a, I'm a year older.
0: <laughs> right. How did he become Uncle Paul?
2: Well, through his knowledge, it's true. People get confused between elders and elderly.
0: Yeah.
2: So in my way of thinking, and yeah, we're all different. Yeah. Elderly is is by your birth to your elder. And this is an uncle Paul quote. An elder is someone that has gained knowledge in cultural and philosophical and spiritual ways and uses that knowledge and shares that knowledge to lift a community in a positive way. And I really like that. So it's about knowledge and it's about positivity. Mm-hmm. And so when you're around elders, you'll feel the vibe of them. They don't need to talk a lot, but when they do, it's really powerful and it's loving and it's constructive and it builds. Mm-hmm. So the way I met Uncle Paul was many years ago, as I was following my healing process from my breakdown, I couldn't find any answers. The, the, the medical system provided me with psychiatrists and psychologists, so I it helped a little bit, but it really wasn't taking me to where I needed to go because I really wanted to learn from the experience and so even though I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody what I went through which is why I write it's about mental health and giving people tips and tricks and good habits so they don't go down my path but having said that it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me and I truly believe it was meant to be so I could use that learning so I was struggling and so I read a lot of a lot of books so I read a lot of psychiatry books I read a lot of books on depression they made me depressed Because you go, oh, my God, there's more symptoms coming. I haven't had that one yet. And you you start giving yourself labels. And I went, okay, they're not helping. Then I went down the spiritual path and I I explored Buddhism and Hinduism and all the different books. And they all had these little nuggets of gold that I could harvest and go, great. And then I read a book by Dr. Claire Weeks, an Australian doctor who's long since passed, called Self-Help for Your Nerves. And it became my Bible because it was very simple She had four practices in it where she said, face your fears, accept you're going to feel really bad, float above them and then let time pass. And for years I just did that. I went and faced my fears knowing that I would have panic attacks, knowing that I would have the the sweats and the adrenaline and I would have blackouts and couldn't think, but floating above it and then letting time pass and not saying, I'm not better yet, I'm not better yet. And then over time what happened was it wasn't about becoming better, I became you. And so I actually went past who I actually was and became the real me. Mm-hmm. And so reading all those things was important. But then I was invited to go bush and learn culture. But it wasn't with Uncle Paul Gordon, it was with another person. And I was told, don't go out there, they're all weekend warriors and they're liars and they're gonna try and steal things from you and and they're no good. And other well-meaning people were saying, You go out there and the devil's gonna get you and you're gonna die of cancer. And I went, well okay, but I'm a big boy, I'll go out and just explore it and see if there is something in it for me. And this whole new world opened up to me of knowledge and love and sharing and respect. And as I was on this path, the different people that were teaching me said, oh, yeah, at some point you will meet up with Paul. To the point, being raised in a Western world, really, even though I grew up on cruel mission, having a lot of Western world ways of thinking, I went, who's this big note of Paul Gordon? He sounds like some kind of bloody cult leader to me. They all, when they say his name, they're so reverent, it must be all bullshit. So I went, oh, yeah, I don't know. This sounds a bit sus. But I loved what I was doing. So down the track, I eventually met Paul Gordon. I'm thinking, yeah, we'll see. We'll see whether this character is the real deal. And when I met him, his aura and his knowledge was so overwhelming that I became struck. And totally filled with fear in terms of he can see through me and you can see that I'm doubting all this and you'll pick me apart and so I became almost like a little kid but then over the years as I got to know him I learned how much wisdom he accumulated right across Australia he'd been with old people right across Australia for a long time and it was all this accumulated wisdom that he shared and so then he became a really important teacher for me then over more years because I've known him for well over 20 years now. Then we became friends, and then over more years he became a best friend. And so the whole thing turned from him being this figure of doubt and cynicism to a figure of fear to now being one of my best friends. And and certainly one of the reasons I write is to, to share one of the passages that he was given by the old people and what that says is, knowledge, if not shared, has no power. And is unimportant. We must always share our knowledge. We don't hold on to it because if I go, if I go to the grave with a cure for cancer, what's the point? Mm. So Absolutely. we must always share our knowledge. But his wisdom is so profound. That's why in this book I've got him quoted mm. verbatim. So you can kind of, the whole idea of the book is you're sitting around the fire out bush with us because that's really what we want. Mm. And down the track, we'd love to see that. But in terms of scale, we'll never be able to do it with everyone. Mm-hmm. So it's to try and create a scene as if he was speaking and you're listening to it. Mm.
0: My parents, and you know, you just got me thinking when you said you, you know, you're going to go out to the land. Uh, my parents are, are Lebanese Australian. They immigrated from Lebanon to Australia in the fifties, and for a long time, I was always yearning. I was born in Sydney. I was born here, but I was always yearning to go back. Anyway, a few years ago, I I went. I travelled back to. Well, I've travelled to Beirut because you know my, both my parents have got family there, and I've got cousins there. You don't realise how connected you are until you get there. Because I arrived at the airport, I had an Australian passport, of course, and I was born in Sydney, so there was no evidence at all. I mean, my passport where I was from uh, that I was Lebanese and that my parents were. And the the customs guy looked at my passport, stamped it, and said, "Welcome to your homeland."
2: Beautiful.
0: And I just couldn't stop crying. But do you know? Do you know, Paul, I had, from the minute I walked out of that airport, I felt that I belonged. These are my people. Yeah,
2: and certainly that's that's another big story that the old people talk about again. We're not just, well, there's a couple of things. We're conceived in love and we're born in love and we live in love. That's the Aboriginal way. So we're not actually born some random thing. And, in fact, if you look at the statistics, if you look at the research, if you flip a coin, the chances of a coin being head or tails is one in two. Yeah, that makes sense, hey. Winning Lotto is a chance of one in two with 12 noughts after it. The chance of being born is one in six with 100 noughts after it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a miracle that we're born. Mm-hmm. But we're not born as a standalone. We're part of a long storyline, and our storyline is those who have come before us, our ancestors, and so it's really important where possible to honour that lineage and go back to that country because those old spirits, in our way, I think those old spirits will recognise you. And this happened to me. I've got Irish bloodlines as well, and I, I was in Ireland in 2017. And when I was there, I couldn't believe it. Spirits came and spoke to me. I wasn't seeking it, and people that don't believe that, that's fine. But a spirit came and spoke to me, and all these amazing things happened that night which is another big story, but when I came back to Australia, I said to Uncle Paul, I said, I was in Ireland and their spirits came and spoke to me. I said, what's that about? He said, have you got Irish blood? And I went, you, yeah. and he went, duh. He said they <laughs> recognised. And can. so, you see, we're all Indigenous from somewhere mm. and family is important. Again, relationships, and again, going back to the values of Aboriginal people versus Western, not saying good or bad, just different. When an Aboriginal person catches up with another Aboriginal person that they don't know, the first thing we'll say is, where are you from? Where are your mob?" And we'll do this little courtship dance where we'll say, oh, yeah, I'm from Karua. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm from Western New South Wales. And I'll say, oh, yeah, do you know Billy, Billy John? No, but I know his cousin. And within two minutes... You're connected. We're connected and we've got this cultural passport where we go, yep, know you, we're family, whereas... You look at the weekend barbecue with Australians more so than the rest of the world. The weekend barbecue, if you don't know somebody, they'll say, what do you do? And it drives my son mad because he says, I'm really not interested. My job doesn't define me. I don't want people to know about what I do because that's not who I am. I'd sooner them ask me something about me. But it's, it's kind of a way of being in Australia that's different elsewhere in the world. Elsewhere in the world it will be, oh, where do you come from and what's your place? So it's an Australian thing, and I have a, I'm not doing another PhD because this one's driven me crazy, but there's a PhD in looking at that, and I, I think what it is, without having any research, it's just an observation, that in Australia, because the colonised culture is so young, there's this thing where, where non-Aboriginal people aren't quite sure where they fit in. Mm. And this this is what I'm trying to achieve, certainly with all of my writing and my PhD as well. I'm trying to create a bridge where non-Aboriginal people don't feel like outsiders. And there's some beautiful quotes from, from old people that are long gone now in my PhD about how our culture is a gift that we're trying to share with everyone on this land. Why do you turn back our gift? It's there for you to listen to. Because the way our culture works is the culture and the song and the dance and the story and the spirit belongs to the land, not the people. So... We're the custodians, so we're, we're the ones that can share the knowledge of the land, but the land owns it. So if you're on this land, you're just as entitled to it as us if you're willing to learn how to do that. And our aim is to show you how to do that so when you walk country, you can feel the, the pulse of the mother and the beauty as we do. And when you do that, then you'll feel well. And, and what you've picked up, they're reconnecting with your storyline or your song line. The Aboriginal way of, of thinking in terms of well-being is we cannot be well if someone on this country is not well. Everyone has to be well. No one can be left behind. So Aboriginal people, we know when you look at the statistics, are suffering from a lot of disadvantage, and I've covered that in my PhD. But even if we became well, we can't be well until Australians are well. And and it's a converse of, of what the government systems think They think, oh, poor Aboriginal people are all disadvantaged. We are, but we have spirit and culture. And and in some ways, we're really, really well and we feel sorry. And I'm generalising, I know, but we feel sorry for non-Aboriginal Australia because you poor fellas aren't well because you might have the house with five dunnies, all those things like when you're in that job, but you aren't well because you're not in a place of contentment. And contentment is the key. Can you walk and connect with things and go, I'm really contented. And the majority of non-Aboriginal people are not contented. whereas Aboriginal people, yes, statistically we die younger, we're 16 times more likely to be in jail, we're more likely to be assaulted, we're less likely to get a job, we're poorer, we're 10 times more likely to have our kids taken from us. But in another way, we still have our culture to this land that we want to share. And the bottom line is we all need to help each other heal. We all need to walk together as one and part of that is feeling part of family here where for you, if I took you bush and I showed you stuff and you felt it, I'd say you're my sister on this country, but then when you take me back to your home country, you'd welcome me and rather than feel an outsider, I'd say, oh, wow, you've brought me into your family. Mm-hmm. And that's what the old people do. They'll say, you can be part of my family. I'll make you my granddaughter," And they mean it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way we, and that's why in the book I do talk about global things and people might go, oh, it's a bit cheesy or cliché, but it's not. The world needs to be united and what we're seeing with all this super connectivity of, of social media and, and other means of technology, we're becoming disconnected because we're forgetting what's really important and that's story and spirit and unity. And, and certainly in the research, I, again, I did for my PhD, what I found was there's enough resource for everybody. In the world, in terms of housing. Absolutely, absolutely. We're just not sharing it properly.
0: No, it belongs to a few. Anyway, Paul, we need to go on this note. We're a bit over time. I have loved our conversation so much. Uh, The book is called The Dreaming Path, um, Indigenous Thinking to Change Your Life. Thank you so much. Thank you.
3: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.